So we're beginning our first sermon series today. Over the next seven weeks, we'll be working through the book of 2 Timothy. It's quite a short book, only a couple of pages. And I'd really encourage you to study 2 Timothy over the coming weeks when you when you have your times of prayer and Bible study at home. Uh, so 2 Timothy, it's a letter from the Apostle Paul to the young church leader, Timothy. Uh, we've been looking at 1 Timothy in recent weeks, but the situation is now very different. Whereas before Paul was writing from Macedonia as a free man, he's now writing from a squalid prison cell in Rome where he's awaiting trial. And Paul knows that he's very likely to receive a death sentence. As a result, this letter is packed with emotion. In fact, it may be the last letter that Paul ever wrote. It is, if you like, his last will and testament for the church. So Paul's in prison in Rome and Timothy is leading a church in Ephesus, which is uh, in modern day Turkey. And this letter was written probably 30, 35 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. The church had only just got off the ground. And yet, humanly speaking, it was already on the verge of annihilation. Christians were facing fierce persecution by a maniac of a Roman emperor called Nero. And here we see Paul passing on the baton, as it were. He's relying on Timothy to keep the church alive under these horrendous circumstances. And there's a real question mark over how Timothy will cope with this massive responsibility. Timothy is young and relatively inexperienced. He's timid, what we probably now call an introvert. He's prone to frequent bouts of illness and he he probably leaned quite heavily on Paul. He saw him as a father figure. Paul even begins his letter to Timothy, my dear son, my dear son. The last time they parted company, Timothy had broken down in tears. And actually, that's understandable because Paul and Timothy had travelled together for best part of 15 years. Timothy was Paul's protégé, his apprentice. Paul was Timothy's spiritual father. In his letter to the Philippians, Paul says of Timothy, I have no one like him. And now Paul is handing the baton to Timothy. And it's it's a hard thing when you realise that you're responsible for something that you don't really want responsibility for. I was once hitchhiking in Europe, and at one point I got a lift with a rather eccentric Dutchman. Now, now the Dutch, they normally speak quite good English, but this uh, man didn't, and so we were having a job to communicate. When all of a sudden he decided that he was going to draw pictures so that I could understand what he was saying. The problem was we were hurtling down the motorway at about 130 kilometres per hour, and he just grabbed my hand and put it on the steering wheel. Looked down and started drawing. All of a sudden, I realised that it was my responsibility to make sure that we didn't crash. It was terrifying. And in a way, that's what happens to Timothy. Paul's not going to be around for much longer. As it is, he's chained up in a filthy prison hundreds of miles away. Timothy is now solely responsible for proclaiming the gospel and building the church. Well, that's how it must have seemed to Timothy. Timothy's got hold of the steering wheel, as it were. So the baton passed to Timothy. And I'm sure that Timothy didn't feel confident equipped or ready to take on the responsibility. And that may be true of us. We know we should share our faith, but we're not sure how to. We don't think we'd be much good at it. Perhaps we're fearful or apprehensive. Well, the advice and encouragement that Paul gives Timothy is entirely relevant to us. So we're going to pick up on four verses and look at what they say to us at this early stage in the life of our church. So firstly, verse five, I am reminded of your sincere faith which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I'm persuaded now lives in you also. Timothy has a sincere faith. He's not a cultural Christian. He doesn't go to church because he's got a kind of a 
vague notion that it's the right thing to do. He's authentic. He has a genuine relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And we see that his faith has been cultivated in the family. His grandmother Lois became a believer first, then his mother Eunice, and finally Timothy himself. And actually that's part of my testimony. My, my mother became a, a Christian when I was about 10. If it wasn't for her, I might not be a Christian today. My mum became a Christian because of a lady called Mary Fairfield who lived down the road. I don't know how Mary Fairfield became a Christian. I can only assume it's because somebody told her about Jesus. So you see how important it is for us to pass on the faith. And I think Paul picks up on this idea of passing on uh, the faith, uh, particularly from generation to generation, because he's at the point in his life where he's having to pass it over completely. He's having to entrust his mission to others. And this reminds us that even from this early stage, we need to have a long-term view. Our children are the church of the future. We need to be very intentional about passing the faith onto them. Of course, any of our children might reject Jesus later on in life, but we want to give them the best possible foundation. That's why our children's work is so important. But we can't just rely on what our children are learning at church. We need to teach them at home as well. Of course, a lot of that is down to our personal example. But we should also be praying with our children, reading the Bible with them, talking to them about Jesus. That's what my mum used to do with me. It doesn't have to be anything heavy, just including Jesus in our everyday lives. I was talking to a local pastor here in Springfield, and he said that his father used to read the Bible with them each evening over dinner. I thought, right, I'm going to try that. Sounds like a good idea. Uh, now, we don't manage it every day, but probably most. And I was surprised at the response. We've had some amazing conversations and the questions, how old will I be in heaven? If Jesus is God, why does he pray to God? Can God hear me when I'm thinking? And believe me, my kids are not particularly pious kids, but they seem to love this routine that we've got into of reading the Bible each evening over dinner. So when it comes to sharing our faith, we start with our families and especially our children. That's the first thing. Secondly, verse six, for this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. So Timothy is to fan into flame the gift of God. I, I wonder, do any of us feel like we're smouldering a bit? You know, we're, we're, we're Christians, we believe, but we're not really on fire for God. There's some burning embers there, but no flames. Does anyone feel like that? Well, Paul is telling Timothy to fan into flame this gift of God. This is something that Timothy has to do. Timothy himself must stir up this divine gift within him. Maybe God is saying something similar to some of us this morning. He might be saying, look, I've deposited this gift in you. Now stir it up, fan it into flame, make use of it. God wants to use us to bring change and transformation to a broken world. But we've got to really want that too. When I was in the Marines, we'd do survival training, which was basically just being cold and wet and hungry for a few days. I'm not sure why we had to practice that, but we did. Anyway, when it came to firelighting, when he had that burning ember, what you wanted more than anything was for it to burst into flame because fire meant warmth and cooked food. Every bit of thought and concentration and effort would be focused on getting that flame. What do you think would happen if we were all like that with our Christian lives? What if we had that, that same sense of urgency to see our spiritual lives burst into flame? Well, let me tell you, it would transform our lives. It would transform our families. 
our church, our community. What an exciting vision. Let's keep fanning that fire into flame. So that's what we do. Next we see what God does. Verse 7. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love and self-discipline. God promises his spirit to all those who truly follow Jesus. What that means is that in a way that we can't fully understand, God's spirit lives within us. And it's the Holy Spirit who gives us the resources we need to tell people about Jesus. It's the Holy Spirit that gives us the impetus, the courage, the love, the self-discipline to keep going when it gets tough. It's the Holy Spirit who prepares the way for us and imbues our words and actions with power. We're not powerful, we might like to think we are, but we're not. God is, and it's God who works through us by his Spirit. In 1966, a 22-year-old woman called Jackie Pullinger wanted to become a missionary, and actually she'd been rejected by pretty much every missionary society. So in the end, she boarded a boat alone and without knowing her final destination. And God led her to Hong Kong and to a specific area called the Walled City. It was synonymous with heroin addicts, prostitutes and tribe gang members. Humanly speaking, Jackie Pullinger had no resources, no training, no money, no contacts. She didn't speak Cantonese, nothing. She just began praying with drug addicts, gang members and prostitutes in the name of Jesus, loving them and ministering to them. And you know what? She saw heroin addicts released from their addictions without any kind of withdrawal. She saw violent gang members giving their lives to Jesus, uh, becoming completely different people. She saw prostitutes released from lives of absolute misery. Her ministry uh, continues to this day, and the walled city, well, that's now been demolished and converted into a beautiful garden. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Humanly speaking, Timothy was weak and fearful. Humanly speaking, Jackie Pullinger had no resources whatsoever. Humanly speaking, we might feel like we're not up to the task, but it is God who resources us by the power of his spirit. All we need to do is fan into flame that gift, that faith, that passion, that desire to see God at work in and through our lives. So finally, we come to verse 8. Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner. Talking about Jesus, or as Paul puts it, testifying about our Lord is not easy. It's not easy to share our faith with others. I mean, some of us might find it quite easy to talk about church and faith and God in the general sense. But we need to tell people about Jesus because there is power in the name of Jesus. That name will evoke a reaction. It might be a good reaction, it might be a bad reaction but it will get a reaction. There's no power in being churchy. There's power in the name of Jesus. Talking about Jesus is a thing that takes courage. So easy to be a closet Christian, at work with the other parents, at the school gate, with our neighbours, even with our families. It's easy to focus on what people are going to think of us or how they're going to react to what we say. But we can't allow a sense of fear, shame or embarrassment to prevent us from sharing, from testifying to the life-giving relationship with God that is possible through Jesus. I often used to say to the youth group back in Tottenham in London, as soon as you stop worrying about what people think of you, that's when God will be able to use you in the most amazing ways. A friend of mine, Mark, served in the British SAS 
and he became a Christian probably about halfway through his service and he was telling me how he was in the mess hall, you know, where, where everybody eats, there's like 200 guys in there and he, he sat down to eat and he had this overwhelming feeling that he had to pray. The Holy Spirit was prompting him to make a stand right there and then, to pin his colours to the mast. So he put down his knife and fork, bowed his head and he prayed, just in his own mind. And one of his mates said, what are you doing? And Mark replied, I just felt that I had to pray and give thanks for my food. What? I just felt that I had to give thanks for my food. Now, by this time, the mess hall was silent. If you've ever eaten with 200 blokes, you'll know that there's uh, quite a lot of background noise. Well, that had all gone. You could have heard a pin drop. All eyes were on Mark. And there was a pause, quite a short pause, after which came a torrent of laughter and abuse and mocking and ridicule. So, so, so being open about our faith can cost us. In this country, it's unlikely to cost us more than a bit of social awkwardness or embarrassment. In other parts of the world, being a Christian could cost you your life. When Paul says, join with me in suffering for the gospel, he's writing from a dungeon as he awaits a death sentence. No one is more familiar with suffering for the gospel than Paul. These are not just empty words. But with so much at stake, we can't afford to count the cost. In verse 1, Paul talks about the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To put our faith in Jesus is to choose life, true life, fullness of life, eternal life. There's plenty of people out there who need to know that. There's plenty of people who don't know that this kind of life is possible. They don't know that it's possible to have this kind of intimate relationship with God through Jesus. And we are holding the baton. The proclamation of the gospel and the growth of the church is down to us.